Welcome back to another Awareness to Action Enneagram episode. I'm with my less than better <laughs> half of a host, Mario. And MJ could not make it today, unfortunately. She's having internet issues. Yes. Um, yeah, mo- so, mom's away, so, today, so the, uh, the, the boys are eating Lucky Charms for dinner. And, uh, yes. Yeah. Beef jerky and watching Rocky. Um, that's... All right. So, so today we're going to be talking about some just trends uh, that we've been noticing in the Enneagram community and trying to understand a little bit better of this question, seemingly a simple question, but it actually, I think, has some profound implications of what is the Enneagram for? How should it be used? What's its purpose? So, so Mario, what's, what is the Enneagram for? You know, um, when I work with clients... One of the things I have them think about most of the time is their purpose. Okay, what what is your purpose in life? And it can feel like a really overwhelming question because people think that we have to go out and find our purpose, that it's going to be revealed to us, that you know it's hiding behind a cloud or something, and we just need to discover it. The reality is, in my view, that you create your purpose. And this is what I always tell people, right? This is when we talk about creating a purpose statement, we are not getting a tattoo, okay? We're not deciding what's going to be carved in our headstone for all of eternity. We're thinking about what is the theme of what's important to me and what I'm going to do about it, how I'm going to bring myself into the world. So you create your purpose and it can change. I always tell them, write it in pencil. Right? We're not writing this on ink. We're not, like I said, we're not getting a tattoo. It is an evolving thing. And I think when you start to ask the question of what is the Enneagram for, you have to ask yourself, which of those perspectives are you taking? Right? Are you taking the perspective that the Enneagram is for something and we have to discover that what it's for? you know, behind a cloud or whatever, and it's unchanging and it's eternal and it's, you know, was brought into the world for this one reason? Or is the question, what am I using the Enneagram for? Okay. Uh, what am, you know, what is the Enneagram for, for me? I am of that latter school. Is it like the difference between, the difference between asking, like, what is the Enneagram doing through me versus what am I doing with the Enneagram? No, uh, no, I, I, because you're, you're, you're turning over agency to the Enneagram there, right? And, you know, the, the Enneagram doing something through me. No, it, the Enneagram's a tool. It's a map, right? It's, it's, a, it's a construct. It's a, you know, it, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's what, I'm going to quote Popper again, but it's what Popper would have called a world three <laughs> object okay you know a world three object mm, is clear well well <laughs> so you know world one is the you know a rock is a rock right two plus two equals four they're objective things okay world two is my subjective experience your subjective experience and so forth world three are these things that don't really exist in a material way mm. but they exist because they have transcended the individual and become something that lives beyond the individual, even the individual that created it, right? So um, so it is, it's a non-material thing that exists, but it doesn't have agency. It doesn't have intention, 
right? And, you know, so for me, the, the, the question is, what am I going to do with the Enneagram? Just to explore that concept yeah. a little bit more, World 3, is that like concepts like justice or yeah, uh, democracy or something it's, like that? Things that are things, but not it, really it, things. Exactly right. It's, and and yeah. it's institutions, right? So a university, right? Art, you know, to go even broader, right? Uh, um, you know, a, a, a body of knowledge, okay? Uh, a story, you know, we could go on and on. And, and it's funny because when people, you know, I've been accused of being a materialist and, you know, and I just, you know, I'm not, right? It's because there are things that exist that are not material. And the Enneagram is one of them. Right? So mm. it's a it's a construct that exists outside the mind of one individual, right? That's shared, that's collective, but it's also evolving in my view, right? And I, I think this is a fundamental question, right? Is the, you know, is is the Enneagram something that is revealed and static or is it an evolving construct? And again, I fall into the second camp. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you ask the question of what's the Enneagram for, right? Uh, for me, it is a tool to help us see ourselves more clearly right, to recognize the habitual patterns of, you know, feeling, thought, emotion that we can get stuck into, to understand how those uh, patterns have a logic to them, and to point out that one of those patterns is probably more uh, substantial in the way it interferes with our life than the other eight are, and it helps us to understand the people around us so that we can you know, be more compassionate toward them and more skillful in our interactions with them. Maybe this is a slight bunny yeah. trail, but for those thinking of you as a materialist, mm -hmm. first, what would be the the um, official definition of that? And then why would you not identify yourself as that? Well, a materialist is somebody who believes that only... Um, the only things that exist are made of material, right? And, you know, are, uh, have substance to them, physical substance in some way. Even our ideas to a pure materialist would be just the uh, sort of the after effect of firings of neurons in our brain, right? So they don't exist independent of the individual. And, uh, you know, there will be people who will claim to be materialists and there will be people who accuse others of being materialists just because they don't believe their, uh, you know, metaphysical stories that, you know, we might like them to. Um, but the truth is there's nobody who's truly a materialist, right? I mean, when you press on it a little bit and say, well, what about love, right? And, you know, you can say, okay, well, love is just, you know, what we call the firings of, um, you know, certain synapses that cause, you know, uh, hormonal releases, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but the idea that we're calling it something and putting a concept on it means that we've gone out of the realm of the material now. Language, language. Mm is a great example of something that's world three, right? It's, it's real, mm, but you know, show me, you know, show me the word love, okay? I can write it down for mm. you, but that's just a written description. That's three, you know, lines on a page, but I can't show you right. the word. It's a, it's a, it's a collection of experience. 
of, of different. Yeah, it's it's a collection of experience. It's a it's well, it's so I, actually, I, I would say that um, all knowledge is conjecture, right? Meaning that anything we think, anything we believe, any any philosophy we have, any explanations we have, even scientific explanations, start with somebody saying, hmm, I wonder if dot, 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 right? I wonder if love is this. I wonder if love is that. And then we start to refine, you know, so we come up with a preliminary explanation and then we start to refine that explanation. Well, no, love's not this. It's, it's more like that. Okay, and we get closer mm. and closer to explanations, and everything is explanation, right? I mean, just you know, everything we do is about creating explanations of things, whether it's our religions, whether it's science itself, it's just explanations, some of which are better qualitatively than others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to go down that road, but. <laughs> Where's Maria Jose to bail us out on this? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Maria Jose in the back of my mind being like, what are we talking about? And why does anyone listening care about what we're talking about? <laughs> so uh, trying to transition us back into our original intent. But I think the um, what we're talking about when we're talking about the Enneagram is a shared a shared concept or a structure a system that helps identify and explain conceptualize these thought these patterns that we have observed over yeah, time and, and yes and so for me the big question related to the enneagram is is the enneagram a fixed body of knowledge is there a the enneagram or is what we call the enneagram an evolving body of knowledge that grows and changes over time. And one of the troubling things I see in the, in the world today is this attempt to revert the Enneagram back into a fixed and structured body of knowledge, right? I think of it as the kind of the religification of the Enneagram, okay? Mm-hmm. And there are very, very, very few areas of endeavor in which adhering to fixed ideas leads to success in whatever pursuit that endeavor is related to, right? I mean, you know, science doesn't stop, right? Okay, this is, you know, this is what Darwin said, so we don't go any further than this. Or, hey, wait a minute, that's not what Darwin said, so how dare you say that? Well, that's just kind of silly in the sciences, right? Same thing in philosophy, right? I mean, you can go back to the, you know, the 20th century and, you know, debates over whether, you know, philosophy should even be a thing, okay? Because, you know, Wittgenstein said, you know, philosophy can't solve any problems, right? And, you know, he was a philosopher. So, you know, and then there were debates about these things too. So all systems of knowledge have to be evolving in my view Mm. yeah and we think about religion i mean it's we think of in today's culture we think of religion as static but it's really not all good all good religions that have survived the test of time have actually continued to evolve sure um it's it's the cults that stop evolving that then implode 
um, eventually. Yes. You, you know, the reality is, well, my view is, which makes it reality. Okay. What is it, your benevolent I, sun god? I have, I have some degree of self-awareness here, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> some degree. Um, <laughs> my view is, is that any, any, anything that is retrogressive in its desire to understand risks being static, risks becoming a cult, right? Because you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, you can look and here's a great example. Okay, so I live in southeastern Pennsylvania and not far from where I live is the sort of the epicenter of the Amish community. Okay, now I'm not going to disparage the Amish, disparage the Amish. I mean, they seem like perfectly nice people to me and that sort of thing. But they follow certain rules, right? Uh, you know, about driving cars or about, you know, electricity or whatever. And even though they try to stay really, really strict, the reality is, is they've got a truck that they use to take their products to, you know, the Reading Terminal Market in Philadelphia to sell them, right? They have, you know, certain things. Well, it's okay. Well, I'll, you know, I'll break the law for this because, you know, of, you know, it makes sense in this situation. So, you know, I don't know anybody who talks about how ideas are fixed until somebody else is violating one of our cherished ideas. And this mm, is what I see yeah. in the Enneagram world, right? So, you know, very often it's, oh, no, that's not right. That's not the real Enneagram because it's not what I teach, okay? Or it's not what I think the truth is. What do you think people are actually saying when they're saying that? What's, what's the thing underneath it? Uh, the, the thing under, yeah. So, you know, it's funny because I, I, I I've, I've been told that many times, you know, what you're doing is not the real Enneagram, that sort of thing. The real Enneagram is this, right? So, for example, right, um, you know, quote, unquote, the real Enneagram didn't talk about wings, okay? You know, seven with an eight wing, eight with a nine wing, whatever. Um, and I've heard people get really adamant about that. And then five years later, they're teaching the wings, Right. And, you know, so there's that part of it. And or, you know, in my case, you know, I used to teach the wings and now I don't. Right. But I'm not adamant in saying, well, if you're teaching the wings, you're not teaching the real Enneagram. Right. I'm just saying, well, I teach it differently. So when now there are some times when I think, yeah, we can say, well, that's not really the Enneagram. For example, uh, you know, I met some people who, you know, said that there are 10 types okay well well no no they're you know they're not you know any <laughs> yeah. means nine so you know i can objectively say that if you're teaching there are 10 types 10 basic types you're not teaching the enneagram anymore you're teaching the decagram right but you know if you go back and you read Ichazo's descriptions of the types they're really different from what is generally understood to be the nine types now. So can we say that, you know, well, Achazo wasn't teaching the real Enneagram? Or would we say that, you know, you know, Rezone Hudson or, or, or uh, Naranjo or whoever are not teaching the real Enneagram because they're teaching, you know, they're not teaching what Naranjo, I'm sorry, Achazo taught. Uh, 
you know, it, it, it starts from the false assumption that there's a one true Enneagram. So, you know, for me, the Enneagram is a body. See, even here, we have to get careful with our definitions, right? And so when we're talking about, quote, unquote, the Enneagram, we have to ask ourselves, am I making claims about there being the, the, the Enneagram of nine personality styles, right? So that's one Enneagram, commonly referred to as the Enneagram of personality. And that's what most people are talking about. And then there's the um, the, the, the diagram itself, right? The, the, that's really, when we say the Enneagram, that's what we're referring to, okay? Or should mm-hmm. be. And then there's this kind of nebulous collection of teachings that, you know, like uh, there being, you know, uh, centers, for example, okay? And there being higher and lower centers and there being, uh, you know, instincts or whatever, the, the vices and virtues and so forth, right? So are all of these things the Enneagram? Eh, you know, I'm not so sure, right? I think they're part of a, you know, any one of a variety of traditions or teachings that also use the Enneagram of personality. But I wouldn't say that what the, you know, what the Desert Fathers were doing in the, I don't know, the third or fourth century was the Enneagram, right? Just because some of those ideas have made their way into some of the schools that also use the Enneagram. Right, and I think that's an important distinction that people need to make. When I use the word the enneagram, what am I, what am I talking about? What was your question? It's <laughs> you lost me. Um, no, <laughs> I mean when we talk about the when we talk about the enneagram, I think the the most popular way of thinking about it is the nine personalities subtypes the fixations the passions all the all the things that are related to those specific types but are are you what you're referring to are you more referring to like the enneagram process well that's a, that's, that's a different enneagram or, too right uh that's one application right. of the enneagram diagram right so the enneagram you know when when i guess it's, it's like um calling calling something the circle yeah and and yeah but which circle are we talking about because because the circle means a lot of different yeah. things in a lot of different contexts. Yeah. So that that's what you're saying about when we say the yeah, Enneagram. It, it, it used to be, you know, back when I first, you know, came up in the Enneagram world, there was, you know, people were very clear on what approach to the Enneagram they were studying, right? You know, back then, back in the 90s, you know, there were a number of Enneagram teachers, but the two big ones in the States, you know, you had, you know, Don Riso on the East Coast and, you know, Helen Palmer on the West Coast, right? And so it was very clear, am I studying the insight approach to the Enneagram, which was, you know, Riso and later Don, I'm sorry, Russ Hudson's uh, approach, or am I doing the narrative tradition? Okay, so, and it was, there were these two camps and people identified with, you know, no, I'm on team East Coast, team West Coast sort of thing. But then people started intermingling, crossbreeding, right? People would take a training with, you know, Don and Russ, and they do one with Helen and David, and, you know, and they incorporate other people's ideas. And so it started to become more homogenous. And it started to be, okay, there are these sort of agreed upon ideas, but not everybody held to all the, you know, more broadly agreed upon ideas all the time. Right. 
So mm-hmm. you, you, we could include things like, you know, you know, there are nine types, there are centers, et cetera, okay? But even with that, you start to see variation in, you know, how different teachers teach it, which I think is a good thing, mm-hmm. uh, personally. Right? Yeah. And that's just the nature of knowledge is, is you learn the thing and you keep learning things about the thing and then it just keeps, it does evolve. And I think that's the, we have an aversion yes. to that, I think, when we're learning something because we, we just want one plus one when it's when it's much more complicated than that it's not even math necessarily you, you you know you're absolutely right and and this is the central message for me of the inner triangle right the inner triangle is all about the creation of the story now you know naranjo wrote about it as um the, the process of ontic obscuration you know of forgetting who i am okay uh for me it kind of represents this tendency the brain has to want to create stories and the simpler the story the better okay so if i can just say well the enneagram is this that's a simple story i can run with that i can you know kind of go back to sleep in a way okay Uh, and i can Mm -hmm. feel safe Mm -hmm. within those confines i don't have to challenge my ideas but if we start to say well wait a minute this is you know this story is you know, there are different versions of this story, right? And mm-hmm. that's okay. And there should be, yeah. right? I mean, there there should be evolving, you know, I hope we would want to get better and closer to the truth as we find out new things, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the evolution of the instinctual biases, for example, is a great example because, you know, back in the original, if you read it, Chazo, when he's explaining the biological foundation of these things, I mean, it's 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 just really bad. You know, I mean, it's just you know, it's it's like, yeah, this doesn't make any sense from a biological perspective. You know, and then as we start to learn more about neurobiology and you know evolutionary biology and that sort of thing, we can start to see. Oh, wait a minute, maybe here's a better explanation of what's happening. Not an ultimate explanation, but a better explanation. And maybe that's something we can do sometime is like go back to some of the quote unquote original texts and and look at the ways in which, yeah, this was the seed of something really great. And then and then also like this is this is just lack of knowledge in a certain area that hadn't evolved yet or so-and-so did it. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and that's a good point because it's not fair for me to say that, you know, what Achazo wrote was bad every explanation is a start okay so even if it's Mm -hmm. incomplete even if it contains inaccuracies and we have to remember that our own explanations are a start and the process is to continue to evolve those explanations as we look for errors in them and correct them Okay, so if we say, you know, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the the social instinctual and the social instinct is related to the respiratory system or something, you know, it's like, no, you know, there's probably something, there's probably a better explanation for that. And as we learn about, you know, if we start if we start to read people like um, Robin Dunbar, you know, who wrote a lot about social sociality in, in different species, or Robert Shrivers, we start to say, oh, well, here are some better explanations of why people behave in these social patterns. Back to this this concept of materialism, I, I think something that's really important that I often run into and just personally what i've been working on 
for myself is, let's say you wake up every morning and there's a cup of coffee sitting on your counter, piping hot, like it's ready for you to consume. And an easy, an easy jump would be, well, I have a gremlin in my kitchen that makes me coffee every morning, right? And even though I've searched thoroughly, no, there's, there's, there's no gremlin, but there must be a gremlin then. So instead of just stopping there, that's not me necessarily disowning the possibility of something that is outside of my perception or outside of what I have experienced thus far in my life. I've, I've not seen a gremlin yet, right. actually. I, I know I'm probably in the minority there, but what I've been trying to do is in everything that I, something that I don't understand, I dig deeper into what is honestly the most materialistic explanation of this well there could be i could be living with someone that's making me coffee every morning an actual human or or maybe it's i'm (laughs) sleepwalking and i somehow make something there's like there's other explanations and to me that's really important to make your worldview predominantly materialist in the sense in the sense that what can be explained simply yeah not that there aren't concepts like love that are just kind of transcend our ability to describe it or to articulate the experience of it. But if I can explain it in materialist terms and in very practical, this makes sense terms on a flesh human level, then let's just stick with that. I can always insert magical mythical creatures in the coffee making process if I want to, if that's what I feel like I want to, but I feel like either you'd have to have both in order to operate. Yeah. So the um, so again, if if I just want to believe in gremlins because I don't want to think about it anymore, then that's fine, right? If it's not going to mm-hmm. affect my life in any way, you know, if I'm just going to assume that you know the coffee will be there every morning for the rest of my life and I'm okay with that, then uh, fine. Right. But if one day the coffee's not there, okay, now I've got to say, okay, well, what happened to the gremlin? Right. It presents me with a different problem. Okay. And every mm-hmm. time we answer, every time we create an explanation to solve one problem, we're faced with another problem that we then have to, you know, solve. Uh, but if I want to act on that, you know, if, if I want to, if it scares me, for example, that, wait a minute, you know, how do I know, what else is this gremlin up to, right? How do I know this gremlin's (laughs) not going to, you know, stab me in the middle of the night or something, right? I want to find out more about what's happening here, right? So as, as a pursuit of understanding that leads to actionable insights, then magical thinking is not very useful, right? So... I could come up with alternative hypotheses. Okay, well, maybe it's a gremlin, but maybe I do have somebody living here, right? And maybe it's my roommate making it, or, you know, maybe some freak is breaking into my house at night and, you know, making me coffee. Stalker. Yeah, you know, or, or maybe I'm sleepwalking, like you said. Now, each of those yeah. things can be tested in some way, right? I can set up a video camera and, you know, test what's happening and so forth. And that gets me closer to, okay, we'll solve that problem. Now I've got a problem of, well, why is this person breaking into my house and making me a coffee, right? So, you know, that's the next thing to explore and so forth. So, so for me, magical thinking is not really useful, 
right? Uh, it just, uh, okay. and it's not interesting, you know? I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's the, the, the stopping of learning. And it's, it's also, you know, one of the troubling things I, I'm, I'm hearing in the Enneagram these days is people talking about, you know, getting guidance from above in some way, you know. Um, uh, there was kind of the story about, about the Enneagram. About the Enneagram, yeah, insights about the Enneagram, right? And, and so, you know, there was the story about, you know, that's much mocked about Ichazo, you know, receiving a download from, you know, Metatron, you know, the Archangel Metatron or something, which according to him, he never really said he was creating an illustration or something. But, you know, but even then you have Naranjo on video saying, you know, well, this came to me through guided writing and, you know, I fleshed it out through my own observations. Well, number one, that's a big claim. So I need some big evidence of that claim, right? And number two, it opens up a whole lot of other questions for me, okay? Well, okay, that's interesting. What guided it to you? How do you know it was some guidance from above? Uh, because usually when people are talking about getting messages from above, they're either some kind of fanatic or some kind of lunatic, right? I mean, that's been the history of things for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and then you run into what's called, you know, what uh, it's called the urethro, urethro problem. I, I'm screwing up the pronunciation, right? So Plato wrote a, uh, one of his uh, dialogues was about the nature of moral law. Okay, and you know he's in a conversation with your Eurythro. I should have looked this up ahead of time, but it's something like that. So the choices are: we get moral law from the gods, okay, and should we assume that moral law comes from the gods or not? Okay. Well, if it came from the gods, we then have to ask: Are the gods merely uh, passing along some? independent a priori moral code to us, right? Meaning they got it from somewhere else. This moral code is absolute and it exists out there in the universe. Or did they just make it up and they say, thou shalt not kill because I don't want you to kill, okay? Well, it presents a problem, okay? Because if they got it from somewhere else, then we really don't need the gods to tell it to us, right? Or, you know, maybe they're just the messenger and, you know, so what? We can, you know, choose to ignore it or not. And if we, you know, assume that they made it up, well, what if they change their minds, right? What if they say, okay, you know what? Starting tomorrow, it's okay to steal, right? Okay, cool. You know, the moral code has changed. So the point is here that we... We have to get past this idea of fixed teachings and dogmas, okay, and realize that all knowledge, whether it be moral knowledge or, you know, the theological knowledge or psychological knowledge, isn't a process of evolution. So, so I'm sure there's some people listening that do identify with some sort of um, religious faith, where they, ha where they have a belief in some sort of deity or higher power or something like that. I guess in your, in your world, what's the use of those things? Is there a use for those, for those beliefs? You know, look, if, 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 if you find it to be comforting, then that's great. Okay? I would advise people to be careful about, you know, when we move into that world one, of objective facts and claims that we use belief 
to settle that question. The, the Dalai Lama mm-hmm. wrote a great essay, I think it was 2010, the New York Times, as he called it, Our Faith in Science. And he said, you know, I love science. I, I, I think it's, you know, the, the only way to understand certain aspects of experience. And somebody had asked him, you know, if science contradicts your Buddhist spiritual beliefs, what would you do? And he'd say, well, I would change my beliefs, right? But we also need some sense of spirituality, some ethical code, some, you know, some sense of purpose to guide what we do with, you know, the science and so forth, right? So, um, so they're not mutually exclusive, and I, you know, it's they have their own place and purpose, and the smart person uses them for their place and purpose. So, kind of coming back full circle as we're as we're coming to a close here on this episode, the trend of of an, the enneagram becoming more of a religion. How do you see that maybe going going wrong? Um, how how that could actually hurt not only the enneagram but the people who are engaging in it, and then also. Maybe w- would there be a place in which it could be healthy? It could be meaningful to create create some sort of religion around the Enneagram. Well, I, I think as far as the foundation of a religion, the Enneagram is, is pretty weak tea, right? I mean, you know, the Enneagram is mm, a great yeah, sure. tool and, you know, but... It's limited, right? And and this is the problem, Very, you know. Yeah. The, you, you know, I mean, it just doesn't explain that much about reality. And one of the problems is that people want it to explain everything. And so they're trying to create, <laughs> yeah. you know, a religion out of it. And there's that stupid, you know, I think it was Uspensky who, you know, quoted Gurdjieff as saying, oh, if you truly understand the Enneagram, you can throw away all the books, you'll understand everything. That's just nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so the Enneagram, is, it's a great tool. But it's it's just that. And if you make it part of a broader spiritual practice in some way or a broader religious practice, that's great. Okay, But when we start to romanticize the Enneagram itself and put a burden on it that it can't carry, we're just we're just going to look silly. Right. And, you know, and, and, and one of the one of the things I'm seeing that's troubling for me is this um, this assertion that the Enneagram is part of some perennial wisdom or perennial philosophy that, you know, has existed for thousands and thousands and thousands of years in secret. And, you know, that and if you're not teaching that version of the Enneagram, that you're not teaching the Enneagram. Give us a little background on on that concept. And <laughs> so uh, in the later 1940s, um, uh, Aldous Huxley wrote a book uh, called The Perennial Philosophy. Um, it was after World War II, like many people in Europe in World War II. He was in a pretty dark place, started exploring all the world's religions and started seeing these commonalities, right? And proposed the idea that there is a perennial philosophy that is shared by all the esoteric traditions, uh, you know, going back in time. And it's kind of kept in secret and revealed to, you know, only the, the special people who deserve it, at least up until 
Huxley wrote his book on it, you know, and then, you know, brought it to the masses. But, um, you know, but, you know, perennialism was, the perennial philosophy was big for a while, and particularly in the New Age world, you know, in the 60s and 70s. But it's not really taken seriously anymore because what the perennialists don't do is see where all these traditions contradict each other. Right? And I see the same thing when I hear people talking about, you know, the chain of custody of the Enneagram, you know, going back, you know, hundreds of years and, you know, oh, you know, Plotinus, you know, got it from the Gnostics or, you know, there were, there were hundreds of years between them. But, uh, but Plotinus, you know, in his book, The Aeneids, wrote a chapter called Against the Gnostics, right? You know, and, you know, the idea is that, well, Echazo got it from Gurdjieff. Well, read Echazo's, you know, letter to the transpersonal community. And he says, I didn't get this from Gurdjieff. And in fact, I think Gurdjieff was kind of a bozo. So, you know, this whole idea of perennialism doesn't really hold up. Okay. Uh, and unfortunately, the people who are promoting it are not taking any efforts to falsify their own premises, right, by pointing out the contradictions mm. and the gaps and, you know, inconsistencies. Could it be, could it be that we, the, the thing, the, the pattern that we're seeing in perennialism is just this, perhaps we see our own humanity, this, this searching for meaning, searching for purpose, trying to understand the universe we're living in. And, and of course, we're going to come up, there's going to be similarities in every uh, tradition. Uh, yeah. Of because course. we're all human trying to figure out the same thing. Of um, course. But that doesn't yeah. mean that underneath it all, it's all the same. I, I, exactly right. And it doesn't mean that it's intentional and deliberate. And, you know, a, it doesn't mean it's a stream of intentional transmission of a specific body of knowledge, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it's the whole Joseph Campbell thing, right? Well, you know, hero with a thousand faces about how these stories pop up over and over again in different uh, cultures. But to your point, we're human. And so, yeah, there's going to be these similarities, right? And uh, But we also have to look at the differences in those things. Mm -hmm. right? and, and when we look at the differences, it allows us to say, okay, well, this isn't intentional. But boy, how interesting is it that there are mm -hmm. certain ideas that are shared Right. Let me think yeah. about those ideas some more, because obviously they're so important to the human condition that they keep popping up over and over again. OK, that for me is fascinating enough without having to build mm -hmm. without having to insert a gremlin into the story. <laughs> right. Right. We, we try to resolve the contradictions too quickly. We yeah, we try to resolve yeah. the differences rather. Yes. In order to in some ways, like feel like we have the one plus one. Like we found right. the the answer that I can now control, and I and I don't have to worry about figuring anything else out. That, of course, no one thinks like that simplistically. No one's like, "Yeah, I have it all figured out," unless you're delusional. But there's still like right. an, an unconscious, subconscious, or whatever way in which we all do that in some form. It's just yes. try to resolve the thing that we feel in our chest <laughs> is, yeah. is not right in the world. And and you know we and you might think boy this you know this is all really esoteric and so what but yeah. it shapes the approach we take to the enneagram right if I assume that all fours are dark and moody and love you know nine inch nails well you know I, I've stopped learning right so it's it's always about humility and exploration and evolution of our understanding of things and if we're not seeking to do that then 
you know, we're just, we're back to Plato's cave, right? Looking at the shadows and thinking that we're seeing all of reality. Hopefully you're able to stay with us despite Maria Jose's um, lack of influence. <laughs> um, is that another zone, Mario, that the, the, the lack of influence um, of Maria Jose? <laughs> Navigating? Yeah. No, I, 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 preserving. I don't think so. Fortunately, okay. she never listens to any of these episodes, so yeah, she'll perfect. never know that, uh, what went on here today. Yes, perfect. Um, all right, thanks, y'all. We'll uh, talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast.